This is Energy Thinks, a podcast about how the oil and gas industry can future-proof against rising social risk and lead the world into the energy future. I'm Tisha Schuler, your host and the principal of Adamantine Energy. This season, I'm talking to game-changing leaders. We all feel the press of disruptions facing our industry, but within that press, within those disruptions is an opportunity for each of us and our companies to lead into the energy future. Uh, Today's show was recorded in February of 2021 when we're having unprecedented weather and energy disruptions across the U.S. and you'll hear us refer to it a couple times during the show. I speak with Dominic Emery, Chief of Staff to CEO Bernard Looney at BP. This is such a great conversation and you'll probably be able to tell I've known Dominic for a number of years. He's worked for BP since 1986 and is currently based out of London. He's worked in EMP, Alternative Energies and Gas and Power. He's a member of the board for the Extractive Industries Transparency Initiative. Really interestingly, Dominic was the founding CEO of OGCI Climate Investments, which many of you know as the $1 billion fund set up by oil and gas companies to invest in technologies and projects to reduce climate emissions. He holds a PhD in geology and earth science from the University of Cambridge and an MA in geology and earth science from the University of Oxford. Uh, One really interesting thing I suggest you listen for today is our talk about BP reInvent. As BP is is pivoting to a, a new energies direction, they're reorganizing and they're looking at really unique attributes of employees as they reorganize. And um, that really caught me by surprise. I hope you enjoy. Um, to learn more about Energy Think podcasts and our work at Adam and Teen, visit our website, energythinks.com. Now, please enjoy my conversation with game-changing leader, Dominic Emery. Dominic, you've been with BP since 1986 in numerous leadership positions across the organization. Then you become chief of staff for this new, young, dynamic CEO, and he quickly takes BP in a new direction. Tell us a little bit about what Bernard Looney is like, and what do you think about this new direction? Well, Bernard is a, it's a tremendous kind of leader. He's got real charisma. Um, he's also got a real kind of sense of conviction about the importance of uh, the energy transition and how we play our part in it. Uh, he's also somebody who's very prepared to listen, including initially before he took over the reins as CEO to, to our detractors and kind of learn from others. Um, and that really helped kind of shape the, the position, the purpose, the ambition that we laid out just about a year ago now. So um, to quote one of my colleagues, actually, Bernard also inspires great followership. He really makes you want to kind of work with him, kind of support him. So um, a tremendous, uh, a tremendous leader and actually kind of really right for this time in BP's history. It certainly is exciting from the outside to see this kind of dynamic leadership um, come into play. And Dominic, you've had a really impressive career in your own right and very important senior leadership positions. Um, and the, but this one has to top them all. What's it like to be chief of staff to the CEO of the sixth largest energy company in the world with 70,000 employees? Well, what's that? What's your day-to-day like? Well, the, the day-to-day is really varied, but it is an amazing and it's an amazing role and it's a real privilege to to be in this role at this kind of particular time. You could almost barely kind of make it up the challenges that the world has gone through, 
that this industry has gone through and the company has uh, has kind of embraced over the last 12 months um, with the change in kind of purpose, direction, kind of strategy. Uh, and having a seat alongside my kind of colleagues on the leadership team uh, and my extended leadership team colleagues and Bernard has been a, an extraordinary opportunity. And to help in a small way kind of shape that has been just remarkable. There are not many chances one gets in life to do this kind of thing. So it has been a, it's been a pleasure. There have been some real hard yards and there will continue to be so, but uh, on balance, it's quite, uh, quite something. Yeah, taking on a job like this under any circumstance, but then you throw on just a little global pandemic and a crash and oil prices. I, I just can't, I really just can't imagine the extraordinary opportunity and, and challenges that your every day must include. Um, so let me, I, I've written a lot um, about BP's ambitious goal of becoming net zero by 2050 uh, and transitioning really to an integrated energy company. From my perspective, this is undoubtedly game-changing. It provides a different model for all of us in oil and gas to look at the future, think about our role in the future. Um, but I imagine it's harder than it looks inside the company. So what kind of culture changes have had to happen internally from people who've spent their whole career as an oil company, as, a, as, a, as an employee, uh, to now uh, being a, a globally leading energy company. What does that look like? And, and even what's really hard about it or what, what has to be done differently? The, I think what's, what's kind of hard about it is that you have to do a lot of kind of big things kind of simultaneously. Um, so you, you can't just do, you can't just change the purpose of the organization you can't just change the strategy of the organization. What we have done in parallel has been a very substantial um, reorganizational activity and restructuring that we call BP reInvent. And as a result of that, we have changed the structure of the company from an upstream downstream company, which has been that way for the last 112 years, to this new structure, which we think is more representative of the opportunity as an integrated energy company. So that's been, a, that's been a, a big deal. But I think as much of those structural changes are important, the changes that we've made to the people in the organization, to some of the roles and the way the selection process has happened, because you mentioned that we had 70,000 people in the company. Actually, the reality is um, probably about 10,000 people will be leaving BP. Many have left and some are leaving. Um, so we'll get down to close to kind of 60,000 in the, in, the, in the coming kind of year or two. Um, and a selection process was put in place with, with particular kind of cultural attributes uh, for people taking on new roles, um, attributes of clear kind of business, kind of great business head, great commerciality, but also attributes of curiosity, uh, wanting to understand why things were like they were and how to change them, and also kind of strong, strong empathy um, and strong performance skills, but if you like an empathetic edge to those kind of performance skills. So I think um, the, if you like, culture kind of will emerge over time, but I think the direction that we've set through the purpose and the reInvent program and some of the attributes that we've selected people on, and you could say on the softer side, I think will be an important contributor to how the, the organizational culture kind of develops over the coming years. Dominic, that's so interesting. I, I have never heard of um, company culture 
selecting for curiosity and empathy. I love that because the, those are words I advise for how we engage with a, a public that's skeptical about our industry and skeptical even when we say we care about decarbonizing. Uh, we have a public that says, eh, are you, are you greenwashing? And we'll get more to that later. Um, but tell me a little bit more about how curiosity and empathy can shape your company's culture. This is completely novel to me and I'm, I'm really interested in that. Well, I'll, I'll take a good example. Um, we've, we've sought to kind of institute a very kind of strong safety culture across BP ever since the tragedy of uh, Deepwater Horizon, uh, putting in place a new set of core, core values of which safety is the kind of the, the, the number one. Um, and we're just rolling out five new kind of safety leadership attributes. And one of the more interesting ones is about really understanding how work gets done. Because sometimes if you're kind of a safety manager or the manager of a safety manager and you're sitting remotely in an office, trying to sort of connect and, uh, as to how things kind of really happen and be curious about how things really get done when you're doing an inspection program, for example, or when you're doing some work activity, I think is actually kind of really important, um, taking it from the kind of the, the abstract, the kind of the, the reality. So that for me is an example of be curious about, you know, how things really get done and how it occurs to let's say the kind of maintenance engineer or the kind of the, 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 the tank farm operator or, or whatever. So I think that's, that's important. Um, on the, from an empathetic perspective, in very simple terms, it's about, again, trying to understand a matter or an issue from the perspective of somebody else. So really putting yourself in their shoes. And, it, and that's really what it boils down to. Um, not just looking at a kind of a problem or an issue or relationship from your own perspective, but thinking about it from the perspective of, of the person with whom you're interacting. So I think that's sort of where we're trying to, we're, we're kind of try, trying to get to. Um, and then being, understanding and knowing your people. So again, very simple things like, you know, of, of your kind of team, do you know kids they've got do you know the names of their kids do you know what their kind of hobbies are you know are you, you know, a genuine sort of interest in, in kind of people I think is a is all part of an empathetic characteristic oh I love all that it's so interesting and the picture I really got in my head is transcending checklists and getting down to core root uh, engagement criteria, whether it's with a problem or a, or a person. So really interesting. Thank, thank you for sharing that. Um, BP's ahead of where a lot of Adam and Teen um, clients and listeners to this podcast are in terms of reorienting traditional oil and gas businesses toward a decarbonizing energy future. Because you're ahead, do you have any advice for companies as they're really uh, exploring how do we do this? They, they're committed to a different paradigm, but they're not sure how to execute. Are there some lessons learned along the way you'd offer by way of advice? Um, yes, and I would say in, in all humility, it's, it's nice that you would say we're, we're ahead. I actually think we're, we are playing a bit of catch up. I think in terms of our overall kind of ambition and aims and strategy, um, I think that is uh, certainly up there. Many companies in our sector have been investing, you know, Total have been doing a great job of making some good quality, low carbon investments over the last few years. And clearly Shell have done, done the same. 
And I would say it's much the same with the likes of Equinor, who have been in, in, in offshore wind for some time now, which is why we, we've chosen to par partner with, uh, with them offshore US. Um, so I would say we, we are, we're kind of, we, 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 we're getting up with the kind of the leaders. Um, we like to think that some of the kind of the targets and ambitions that we've laid out are kind of our leading edge. H having said that, the, the world will still need hydrocarbons for many decades to come. There's absolutely no doubt about that. And so our strategy is a transitional strategy. It's not a cliff edge strategy. Um, and so we, we need uh, a high quality hydrocarbon business to, in a sense, enable the kind of future business. We need a high quality hydrocarbon business throwing off cash to enable us to construct a balance sheet that will allow us then to make the transition. So the emphasis from a hydrocarbon perspective is all about sort of quality. How can we be the best hydrocarbon business out there? And so what we have done in order to kind of drive quality through choice is that we've kind of raised the bar in terms of our pay payback expectations and returns expectations from our oil and gas businesses. And we've also made it more difficult for ourselves because as you may recall in the middle of last year, we laid out a new kind of uh, long-term kind of price assumptions for oil and gas, which, which made, um, which were reduced prices, which then, raise the bar even further still. So that allows us to kind of drive quality. And to be frank with you, there are some projects that we might have done, you know, a couple of years ago that we, we won't we won't be doing, we won't be doing now. So that's it, that's the that's the portfolio kind of choice and project choice component. And then the other big component is around the quality of the underlying business, both in terms of its operational cost performance, uh, lifting costs being one obvious thing but also in terms of its environmental performance, in terms of um, emissions, CO2 emissions, be it methane fugitives, et cetera. Again, really trying to kind of drive that down kind of very, very hard. And also to put in place novel technologies for operations, such as electrification of, uh, of our operations for, for oil and gas. That's a, that's a big, big opportunity. And then ongoing energy efficiency measures um, where, where, where appropriate. So I think taken as a package, you've got operational interventions, um, which are really important. You've also got project choices uh, that we've made, if you like, tougher in oil and gas through raising the bar in terms of return and payback expectations. I think our audience will really appreciate your pragmatic characterization, both of the need for hydrocarbons, but also how this pivot requires an even more efficient, effective, business operation of our of our more traditional operations. So thanks for laying that out. Let me um, push on a little bit different area and give you a chance to geek out with your technical background um, because BP is um, making commitments to incubate some novel low carbon solutions. Um, you've invested over $200 million so far as I understand it. Tell us from your perspective, you don't have to speak for the company. Well, I know you always speak for the company, but you can tell us what are you most excited about? Of some of these new areas of development, what's promising or at least exciting? Well, yeah, and I could go on forever on this stuff. So I'm, I'm somewhat circumspect. Just a couple of things. Um, the 200 million, that's what we had been investing in kind of uh, low carbon kind of technologies very, very broadly for the last few few years um, in what we call kind of venturing proof of concept, et cetera, et cetera. Um, now, I think our venturing for portfolio is probably closer to, because we've been doing it for the last decade or so, 
it's probably uh, we've invested probably more than half a billion dollars into those into those venture wow. Corp a corporate venture of capital into energy is you know an exciting area for us which we've been working on for some time now and it, we've sort of gone through three different phases one was back in the early 2000 around the kind of late you know 2008 through to kind of 2012 was sort of clean tech 1.0 there were some real challenges because the world didn't quite get to kind of grips with those opportunities um then there was another phase where we were using some of the venturing capabilities to invest in technologies in our core oil and gas and downstream businesses. Um, and that, that included low carbon technologies such as kind of novel biofuels, et cetera. But it also included kind of wireline tool technologies, artificial yeah. intelligence for the subsurface, et cetera. And then in, in recent term, in the last few years, we, we, we were really looking at opportunities in the energy transition. Um, and so the sorts of things I think that have got really quite exciting are in uh, electrification, uh, vehicle electrification in particular. So we've um, we've invested in two two quite neat examples. One is a company called Freewire. Um, Freewire are based in uh, on the west coast of the US, and they have the mobile charging units um, that you can actually put on a, a retail forecourt, for example. Um, and that helps to sort of complement um, our kind of existing gasoline and kind of diesel offer. Um, so that's kind of one neat technology. Another one is an investment made in a battery technology um, based out of Israel called Stordot, um, which again has a battery technology which allows you to fast charge rapidly. Because we do mm -hmm. think ultra fast charging is going to be very important. You know, you, you don't want to be spending, you know, an hour or so kind of waiting for your car to charge up. Um, uh, unless you've got a fantastic nearby kind of retail kind of facility, that's a different story. But right. If we can charge a car up at the same speed as we can put diesel or gasoline in the kind of five to 10 minutes, that's a, that's a big deal. So I think a lot of those kind of electrification opportunities have been kind of really exciting. And, and they've now been propelled, a number of them, into our, our advanced mobility activity and our electrification activity, which has now become more of a kind of mainstream business for us. Um, because what we did uh, just over two year, three years ago was to acquire a company called Chargemaster, which was the UK's largest electric charging company. Um, and we wanted to use that as a platform to build and scale um, electric charging. So um, I've already gone on too long, and that's just one kind of sector of uh, where we're interested. But um, a couple of other areas uh, that are worthwhile kind of highlighting. Uh, one is around um, carbon capture and storage. And again, this has been the kind of a holy grail really for um, for, for many, but particularly mm -hmm. for um, users and also for oil and gas. And the, the broadly, broadly, the maths are, it looks almost impossible to reach kind of net zero without a component of CCS in the system. You can try very hard not to have CCS, but there are some industrial processes that you cannot not have CCS for. So you probably will have about five gigatons of uh, CO2 emissions that will need to be abated by carbon capture and storage in, in due course. Um, and, and at the moment, I think we probably have an install base of about 50 million tonnes of CCS, so really nothing, you know, two, two orders of magnitude more. So the technologies we've been investing in both as BP and also collectively through the oil and gas um, climate initiative have been in cap new capture technologies um, using solvents, um, using kind of stock solid state capture technologies, um, and some of, our, um, some of our peers have been using other novel technologies, um, for example, molten carbonates. And, and you would have seen just a week or so ago, Exxon have now set up a kind of a specific kind of 
CCS kind of unit, which is mm -hmm. uh, IT, and that will certainly help to scale. Um, so capture technologies, they're, they're, they're kind of really important. I think they will kind of hold the key for successful kind of CCS, particularly large-scale rollout. Um, what we haven't done as yet is to invest in the way that Oxy have, for example, in direct air capture. Uh, again, that's very supportive of their kind of their, their new kind of business of selling effectively carbon neutralized oil, which um, mm -hmm. they, their first cargo a few weeks ago, which was that's a, that's a pretty cool thing. Um, so that's that's kind of CCS. And then maybe a final area would be around uh, digital technologies. And I, I mean digital in the kind of very broadest sense. Um, so this would be kind of artificial intelligence. We have an investment in a company called Beyond Limits that's kind of very exciting. It's one of the kind of the leading AI companies in the world. And again, that can be applied across a number of different business segments, both at the customer interface and also for, um, um, for kind of well management, for example. Um, other interesting opportunities around um, detection technologies, satellite detection technologies, um, Again, both as BP and as the Oil and Gas Climate Initiative, we've invested in a number of those, particularly for methane, methane detection. Again, that's all about getting an early warning of kind of methane leaks and putting them right very, very, very quickly. Um, and then on the next level down, investing in airborne methane detection technologies, because mm. as you may be aware, we've set out an, one of our aims um, around methane is to put methane measurements by 2023 at order of our major emitting sites. And one of the big challenges around methane has been the ability to really measure it. So of course, it's calculated by engineering kind of differences and standards at the moment. By being able to directly measure it, I think we'll be in a much better position to say, yes, the methane um, fugitive rate really is kind of 0.2%, or maybe it's 0.1%, or maybe it's more than that, but then go ahead and start to kind of correct accordingly. So anyway, um, I think I've probably geeked out enough, and I, I shall draw breath and pan back over. <laughs> You can take one second to draw breath, but. We will be back to the Energy Thinks podcast momentarily. But if you work in the oil and gas industry, you understand that we are facing a massive set of disruptions that are unprecedented in our lifetime. This pandemic has upended the world in which we operate in. How can oil and gas leaders face these disruptions in ways that aren't just reactive, but proactive? Tisha Schuler's new book, The Game Changers Playbook, How Oil and Gas Leaders Thrive in an Era of Continuous Disruption, is that guide for oil and gas leaders who want to make sense of this moment and chart a better path forward. Order your copy today at energythinks.com backslash game changer. That's energythinks.com backslash game changer. And now back to the show. Ask you about one. I'm very excited to hear, and obviously we should have just spent our entire hour on technology because um, all of us can get excited about how much opportunity there is for oil and gas companies to participate in the energy future by being a part of these kind of investments and demo projects. Um, one that you didn't say. Um, is hydrogen. So I'm just curious, is there anything happening in hydrogen that you're interested in, or is that something that BP isn't looking at right now? Well, had I had time, um, <laughs> self-censored, I would time. have said hydrogen was the fourth one. So uh, <laughs> um, now hydrogen is, is going to be, we think, very important. And again, if, if one looks at it at a kind of a macro scale, the in general, I think the kind of the winning technologies as we get to the kind of the middle of the um, the middle of the, the century 
Uh, renewable power, without a doubt, um, likely to make up maybe 50% or maybe even more of kind of end energy use. So power is a big, big deal, and the investment opportunities in power are phenomenal. Hydrogen is going to be there for sure. Uh, we, we think, well, it's the royal way this is. This is the uh, the Energy Transitions Commission, the Hydrogen Council, and various other kind of worthy bodies <laughs> would say that hydrogen could represent as much as 20% of end use energy, um, uh, both for it could it, for use in heavy duty transportation, um, potentially on road, potentially shipping. Um, hydrogen also for heating. It's actually quite tough um, to kind of replicate the kind of the benefits of kind of natural gas for for, for heating. Um, tragically, as many people are kind of noticing in, in various parts of the US at the moment. And so having that instantaneous kind of, a, although clearly hydrogen doesn't have the same thermal density as methane, I think as a kind of a heating alternative, as a zero carbon heating alternative, it is very exciting. Not only for domestic heating, but probably more importantly, for industrial processes. So you could start to see hydrogen being used for where you need kind of high thermal quality industrial processes, such as steel making, um, et cetera, et cetera. So we are very excited about hydrogen. Um, it's remiss of me not to mention it because I've been banging on about it for a few years in BP now. And I would say the production process for hydrogen is, is, is interesting because it gives an opportunity for um, decarbonization of kind of natural gas um, with CCS to the creation of blue hydrogen. And also the possibility of, of, of large quantities of green hydrogen through the use of uh, electrolysis of, of water. And if you have a twin, twin track of reducing re renewable energy prices, which is what we're seeing at the moment, uh, and also reducing electrolyzer costs, which is kind of what we're seeing at the moment is we've had kind of solar panels uh, and wind, we've had kind of batteries, uh, we will have fuel cells and we have electrolyzers coming down those cost curves, you can start see, seeing green hydrogen becoming very competitive. So, um, and to sort of conclude on that, we have a couple of projects underway, paper, uh, demonstration projects kind of paper on, at the moment, one looking at green hydrogen at, at, around our Lingen refinery in Germany, using offshore kind of wind renewable power to create that green hydrogen. We're also looking at another one in Western Australia, another green hydrogen project, potentially combined with solar, or probably more likely to be solar. Um, and then the, a big blue hydrogen project that we think will be an important part of our net zero side project that we're doing with a number of other um, oil and gas companies and others besides up in the northeast of England, which will effectively be taking kind of a, a natural gas from the North Sea um, and then converting that into hydrogen and CO2 burying the CO2 in a very in a huge aquifer offshore and then using the hydrogen for industrial processes, potentially transportation, but a, a, a big blue hydrogen hub is potentially uh, possible there. Oh, I love it. I get really excited about all of these topics for so many reasons, um, but, but a, a really big one is that with the oil and gas industry or the historic oil and gas industry, now the energy companies of the future, engaging in this kind of R&D, this kind of innovation and, and vision, the world moves towards net zero much faster, maybe orders of magnitude faster with us engaged. And I think um, by giving you these few moments to geek out, Dominic, you really helped make that, that point. So thank you. Um, let me ask one pushback I get when I feature international oil and gas majors is that's Europe. They're all on a different track. They're under different pressures. 
I think no one would argue now that in the U.S. under a new Biden administration, um, U.S. companies are going to face a next level pressure around decarbonizing the energy future. But that said, you you run um, your U.S. operations under BPX. Do you have a different framing for for your focus in the U.S. or is it fundamentally the same as the kind of pivot that you're discussing globally right now? So it all forms part of the same global pivot. Um, and, and, and Dave Lawler, um, who I know you guys know, who's our um, president of BP America and also runs our BPX business. Dave is absolutely going kind to of all in and committed to the energy transition. And he'll happily kind of say that on occasion after occasion. Um, I think the way that kind of the BPX business is, is run, as we say, we'll continue to need oil and gas for kind of decades to come. We have made it clear um, that we expect our oil and gas production to decline. Um, we have said it, we anticipate a decline of about, by about 40% in the next uh, 10 years. So this is a, a substitution strategy of oil and gas for convenience and mobility and renewable power uh, and in due course hydrogen. Um, so that's quite an important point, but there are certain assets that, that we, we have and the Dave and the team are kind of running those assets kind of really well. Although obviously with the current kind of weather conditions, very, very challenged at the, at the moment. Um, and the, the assets that the, the team acquired a couple of years back, they're really driving down um, to make them as kind of environmentally appropriate as possible, particularly trying to drive down kind of methane emissions and methane intensity. So, so Dave and the team are very much kind of all in on that. Um, and I would say looking at our broader kind of footprint in the US, one of the big deals that we did just uh, a few weeks ago was to conclude the, invest, um, the investment with uh, Equinor in a number of offshore wind blocks um, in the Northeast US. Um, and that itself will create um, kind of a huge new infrastructure um, around ports in, the, in New York. Um, and actually, we hope make a kind of very significant sort of contribution to the um, uh, to the to the energy transition. So yeah, the US is absolutely kind of part of that uh, part of that change, and Dave and team are helping to kind of drive that to a, to a great extent. That's great, and I'm just warning Dave if you're listening, uh, an invitation to come on the podcast is coming to you next, and we'll, we'll have a little focus <laughs> on the on the US. Um, one of the early things we talked about in our discussion here was BP's values. And in, in 2020, one of the really important things that happened um, were protests around the world focused on creating racial equity and justice. I'm interested to hear from you if um, that has impacted the way BP articulates its values and if um, racial equity and justice in the US or global is taking on a different kind of focus um, going into 2021. Um, short answer is yes, absolutely. Um, and Dave was quite vocal about it um, at those kind of times in the in the in the US last year. And we, we have kind of specific plans um, in the in the US to kind of address some of those uh, sort of inequity issues. But, but more broadly, what we also did back in September when we had a kind of a BP strategy week, uh, we laid out a new sustainability framework. And that sustainability framework kind of bladders up to our purpose, which is reimagining energy for people on our planet. And I think one thing that really came to the fore in 2020 was the was societal inequity in a number of different kind of guises. One was clearly kind of racial inequity. Uh, there was also the impact of the pandemic, which is also kind of, in a way, laid bare more of the kind of, uh, kind of societal kind of challenges. Mm -hmm. and, um, 
And so what we wanted to do really as part of the, um, um, as part of the, the our, our new approach was to create a sustainability framework that again was coherent with that purpose. And so what we did was to launch that um, and within that sustainability framework, it really three, it comprises three parts. Um, one part of it is, um, is getting to net zero. So that's you know, very much our kind of ambition. Mm -hmm. Another part of it is around sort of care for our planet. Um, and another part of it is around improving people's lives. So, so we have, a, if, you like a kind of a, if you like, a planet component to it, and then if you like, a human component to it. And that improving people's lives you know, covers a, a, multitude of different, uh, a multitude of different areas. Um, it actually caused us to put in place a, a new um, human rights, kind of an updated human rights framework. Um, which was very important, um, promoting equality and sustainable livelihoods, and also both for ourselves and externally to kind of promote well-being, particularly with a focus on kind of mental health and mental well-being at the present time being a kind of particularly kind of relevant uh, relevant issue. And other areas around respecting human rights on kind of worker rights, freedom of expression, et cetera, et cetera, grievance mechanisms. So these are the sorts of things that we're wanting to do in support of reducing that inequity. Um, and in so doing, we're also putting in place some more kind of granular targets um, uh, and expectations around the diversity of our teams. And one expression of it, interestingly, is as we went through this big reorganisation and change process, the uh, gender diverse, diversity pretty much across all levels and across all measures improved, which was something we really wanted to, mm. to achieve. And so... It's it's all it's fine kind of saying these things, but we actually want to get into action and do them. But again, in all humility, we've got a way to go yet. We've got a way mm -hmm. to, go but definitely the kind of the, the the destination is very clearly set around this. Mm, that's great, thank you. And I, I do think it's important as we think about changing the game around energy that we keep returning to these core values, because as you just very articulately described once we're making pivots, it's really an opportunity to engage on multiple levels, including internal diversity and inclusion and externally around um, creating enduring prosperity and equity. So thank you for describing that. Well, while we're on values, um, you have unique experience engaging with um, activist uh, shareholders and shareholder groups that are focused on climate and um, I imagine are, are now or soon will also be focusing on racial equity and justice. What have you learned from engaging with activist investors? And um, do you have any advice? Pretty much all of our clients without exception now have some kind of activist investor um, uh, engagement now. There are shareholders putting forth resolutions or bringing forth uh, threats of them and Companies of all sizes have to be able to engage in a, in a constructive way. What, what have you learned? Feel free to describe any bumps uh, along the way. And what ad advice do you have for oil and gas leaders? Um, my first advice would absolutely to be engage. Um, engage and listen and listen really hard and then listen some more. Um, because many, many of these um, investor groups, for example, like Climate Action 100 Plus, this is a group of some of our biggest investors, um, and they are kind of deeply interested in um, sustainability and sustainability of their companies. And so I think have been very helpful in helping to 
Um, so engaging in a dialogue with them about kind of their understanding of the energy transition, our understanding and how we kind of lean into it has been really important over the last few years. And we, we adopted a, a shareholder resolution from Climate Action 100 Plus a couple of years ago, which I think has, has caused us to be, you know, has helped us with regard to the kind of transparency of some of our investments and the alignment um, or the um, consistency of our kind of strategic approach with the, with the Paris goals. Um, but I think it's also important to realize that it's not just a one-off conversation. Um, as the world gets clearer about its intentions around net zero, then investors will also kind of raise the bar on their expectations of you. And so again, it's a ongoing conversation. It's not going to just be, yes, we've done it through one resolution and then kind of that's it. No, it will continue. Mm. And it's a very worthwhile conversation because you, you actually learn an awful lot. Um, so my, my simple lesson is kind of listen, listen and engage and don't, uh, don't kind of throw it out without having a kind of a deep heart kind of think about it. That's a, that's a really um, a great way to approach it. And our observation is, as yours is, one is never done with this work. So the, the conversation, engaging in the idea of an enduring relationship building is probably prudent because um, the bar will keep moving and the expectations of our companies will be that we can continually improve um, in, in all these arenas. Um, so thank you. I, I'm going to transfer some of the pushback I get to you and let you help me figure out how to answer these questions. So one one is companies, when I put forward, forward BP or others is making some of these game-changing pivots. People say, yeah, but they're, the shareholders are still um, uh, punishing them for being an oil and gas company, or they're, or they're trading essentially at a, a discount, the discount that the oil and gas industry broadly is trading at right now. How do you all think about that? And on, on what time frame do you expect um, shareholders to say, oh, you're, you're an energy company, uh, an integrated energy company, or, or am I thinking about this all wrong? No, it's a great, it's a great point. Um, and really 2020 was a a, a, an appalling year in terms of kind of share price performance amongst our sector. Um, at one stage, amongst the kind of five kind of super majors, something like from the kind of the beginning of the year to sometime, I think in kind of October, November, something like kind of, um, gosh, it was a huge number, $1.2 trillion had been wiped off the kind of the market capitalization of uh, oil and gas companies. It's of that order of magnitude. So it was, uh, it was extraordinary. And there'd be lots of comparisons of how kind of once mighty oil and gas companies are now could have been overtaken by kind of energy company utilities and whatnot. Um, so this, in a sense, that was the, um, it was an important kind of trigger point for us to kind of think about our strategy. Uh, so we have to think about our strategy in the eyes of, uh, of, of investors. And the reality is the oil and gas industry has not kind of returned terribly well to investors over the last, uh, over the last few years. Um, there was a period of time when, I think we weren't returning as well because we weren't doing some of these big mega projects very well. But I also think there is a, a kind of a real challenge um, in terms of both the kind of the perception of, of, the, uh, uh, of the industry and more specifically about the way investors actually value companies now. Because what's pretty interesting since the kind of start of last year to the start of this year, we're almost back to well, in the last 12 months or so, the old price is actually higher now than it was 12 months ago our share prices are absolutely nowhere near where they were then. So mm -hmm. 
some, some, there's some delinkage that's happened between the way companies are valued uh, and an oil price. So that commodity linkage appears to have been, at least for now, broken. Um, so that suggests to us that um, um, the, the, the change that we're making, we feel is the right thing to do from a kind of societal perspective. But of course, we've got to get investors kind of comfortable with moving away from our kind of traditional businesses. And so the way we've tried to kind of lay out our new investor proposition is that we still create a kind of a dividend from only BP stock. So there's still, there's still some income components of, of holding BP. And in fact, the yield is very good. Um, it would be better if the yield was good. It was not so good because the share price was high. But anyway, it is what it is. What we did do in transparently, we, we halved the dividend back in um, uh, back in the middle of back in the middle of the year, back in August. Mm-hmm. There's an income component to it, but there's also because of the phenomenal growth opportunity in kind of renewables, alternatives, and low carbon. So just as a kind of a quick deviation into a kind of statistic, I think the International Energy Agency, reach net zero, i.e. kind of 1.5 degrees, will require something like $100 trillion of investment over the next 30 years. So you've got to say, what an opportunity that presents. That is a fantastic business opportunity. So take it from a, an opportunity-rich perspective to make, to make the transition. So in a sense, that offers growth. So you've got the kind of income and you've got, then you've got potentially kind of growth exposure for your stock. And then finally, as you go, as you seek to enact your kind of sustainability frame and you drive towards net zero, you become more attractive from an ESG perspective too. So that's a sort of transitional kind of proposition that we have out for our kind of investor community at, at, at the moment. Um, the, the reality though is you've got to prove it and you kind of got to prove it quarter on quarter, milestone by milestone. And rightly, the community, the investor community will say, okay, I'll, I'll, perhaps I'll give you some time, but you, you guys have got to perform, you've got to deliver, you've got to execute. So we're now in that phase of demonstrating that, that, this, is, that this is possible. Um, there is one other important kind of financial kind of point, which is around the commitment we've made to reducing our kind of net debt and getting our balance sheet in a kind of a strong position. And so we've set this target for net debt of $35 billion, which we're saying we, we expect to achieve by the end of this year or early next. Obviously, the sooner the better. But once that target is achieved, then we start a share buyback program, which we think is also going to be attractive to investors into, into our stock. So for those looking at kind of total kind of shareholder return, we think that will be an attractive proposition as well. So anyway, that's the kind of the, the rather long answer to your, your question, Tisha. But uh, it is an investment strategy that we think is good for growth, is good for ESG, and is good for income. I think that's a, it actually makes a very compelling story. We'll see how I do passing it along when people ask me. Um, let, let me ask you about one, one piece um, that you didn't mention that I'm curious how you're thinking about it, which is there are analysts who think we're, we're systemically underinvesting in oil and gas development given projections for demand, even conservative projections. And therefore in a few years, there will be uh, a, something of an oil shortage and a price spike. Um, from your perspective, do you think that's, is that something you guys are thinking about? And is that someone else's job to go find and produce that oil as you pivot into new energies? Or do you think that that's, that is correct and that'll continue to be a core part of your business? Um, so I think the you know, predicting oil price is always going to be interesting. Um, so I won't predict. Uh, the, the one thing I'll predict is that it will vary. Um, the, 
just just today, a couple of kind of notes from banks were saying they could see a run up. I mean, the more extreme kind of saying we can see a run up into a kind of three figure oil price coming quite soon because of kind of supply crunch. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, that that is possible. And I think there has been, you know, given the cash flow situation of the last kind of year or so, um, I think there will have been relative underinvestment. Um, and so, yes, we might see we might see price movement. Um, we might start to see price movement from um, uh, because of Middle Eastern tensions as well. We will we will see. Um, but in in the very long run, um, a a commodity that frankly, in order to for the world to reach the Paris goals, has to decline. Um, price will go kind of generally in one direction, but there will be some kind of spikes along the way. And I think we just have to be ready for those kind of spikes and to kind of defend our kind of story during during those price spikes. Mm, that That's very interesting, I think, and in, in effective way to think about it. L- let me finish with a personal question um, for you, Dominic. 2020 was a really challenging year for all of us. You are in this extraordinary role at an extraordinary time and now going into 2021 your company and your ceo have set some really challenging um uh, targets to meet so how are you changing your own leadership style um to rise to the challenges of this moment and 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 in what in what things are you looking forward to um in for success in 2021 well, thank you, thank you for asking that. And it's a, it's a great question. Um, I think because my job has kind of changed, you know, prior to this role, I was responsible for kind of strategy and policy activities, much more kind of in the content of things. This role is much more about, you know, ensuring that our kind of leadership team kind of works really effectively. We make the kind of right decisions. We have the right meetings. Um, and so I think the leadership style has necessarily become more of a collaborative style. And so I've had to use kind of those skills, which is rather than kind of the kind of deeper understanding of content skills, um, leadership styles that kind of encourage and, and you know create collaboration where, where where we can. So I think that's that's an important uh, that's an important part of it. I think the the other thing is around again in the past one could have a slightly kind of let's call it scientific or technocratic view of of, a, of an opportunity. Now it's it's much more about having kind of leadership con- conviction. Um, and being kind of clear that, you know, this is, we believe sincerely, this is the, the right way ahead. In humility, who knows? But, uh, but nevertheless, you know, I think collaboration, conviction and confidence would be the kind of three things that I, I wanted to kind of try and bring to the, uh, the kind of the table in this kind of, this, this kind of transitional time. Because um, the confidence thing is really important for people, that they kind of want to know that this is the right, the right track. Um, and yeah, there will be absolutely, there'll be kind of bumps in the road. There is no doubt. And there have been and will continue to be so. But projecting the kind of the confidence uh, in the future, but recognizing that you know, it's, it's a careful balance of projecting confidence, but being open to kind of new ideas and being open to being kind of wrong. You know, you, you, you have to, you know, be kind of, frankly, kind of empathetic in that regard. So, um, so there, there are a few, few areas that I, I, I'm kind of, that I'm seeing I'm having to, Kind of develop and kind of change uh, in, in, the, in the new role. I love that we ended with um, the C's of your leadership style and we began with curiosity um, as part of the culture <laughs> change. So Dominic, thank you for such an interesting and enlightening discussion. It's been such a pleasure to have you. 
Thank you very much, Tisha. Really appreciate it. And uh, um, I hope you can have my, some of my colleagues on the, uh, on the podcast soon. We'll make it happen. Thank you, Dominic. Cheers. That's our episode for today. Thanks so much to Dominic Emery for taking the time to share his perspective with us. Um, I love to think about what a game-changing insight from the conversation was for me, and and there were several. One was, as I mentioned um, in the intro, these cultural attributes that BP is looking for of curiosity and empathy. To me, this really signals uh, a new day of how uh, each of us will be leading into the energy future. The other part that was game-changing was the way he articulates their investor proposition, which is this combination of both becoming the best hydrocarbon business out there and this massive uh, refocus toward um, the energy future. I love how they are combining both of those in their vision. I'd like to know what you thought was game-changing. So visit our podcast website at energythinks.com podcast and let me know. You can subscribe to Energy Thinks on iTunes, Spotify, and or wherever you get your podcast. If you like what you're hearing, uh, please take a moment and rate us. I want to thank Lindsay Gage, Michael Tanner, and Scott Marshall, who've made the Energy Thinks podcast possible. Until next time, I'm Tisha Schuler, wishing you and yours happiness, prosperity, and good health.